Okay. Um, has everyone been able to uh, download, access the, the reading for this week? And particularly the attachment I sent you, uh, the Lacan essay. Yes? No problems about that? Good. Okay. Um, right. Now, I, I want to talk about narcissism and the key role that plays in the development of Freud's thought. Um, but I thought the best way to begin any Freudian reflection on narcissism um, is to play you a song, um, if I can make this work, uh, which is a big if. Um, No, this is a cassette. Technology is a bugger, I know. However, I have come not unprepared with a fallback, a fallback machine. Okay. Uh, so if you give me a minute's time, I will handle. Okay. If I can make this now, unfortunately, I'm going to need two. No, I'm going to need two. Unless somebody else can make. Can, can, this is a really old-fashioned, the only thing I could dig up in the department. Um, and at the moment, I'm failing entirely to make the CD work. CD, oh, wait, hang on, try that. CD open, close. Ah, right, okay. Uh, now, I want, to find a particular, I want to find a particular track uh, on that, which I do. Um, so choose those two. Okay. So, now, how do I know that? Um, uh, yes, I think it's track eight. Um, uh, no, track seven. I want. Um, but where does it? Where does it tell you that? Um, Be 
check I've got the right track. I'll find this in a minute. This would tell me. it. Right. This is one of Handel's great arias in which Semele, who was Jupiter's lover, has been given a mirror by Jupiter's angry wife to say, you are very beautiful, look at yourself. And the words you'll find here, myself I shall adore if I persist in gazing. You'll find this little uh, words of the aria. Is it all, has it gone round? Now, this is a moment, one of Handel's most extraordinary inventions of um, the high coloratura singing, in which narcissism becomes a kind of jouissance, a kind of the most erotic moment in the opera is not the love-making between Semele, the earthly maiden, and Jupiter, but Semele looking at the mirror that has been given her by Jupiter's wife in order to destroy her, um, and saying, you are so beautiful, you should become a goddess. And she just repeats the same entranced, ecstatic words over and over again at higher and higher and higher levels. It comes to a kind of almost um, bel canto orgasm. Okay. gazing is just drawn out into this extraordinarily excited way as it builds up and builds up climactically. So the act of gazing is a sort of is an act of sexual coming as she looks at herself.
Okay. Um, <clears throat> it's an extraordinary uh, piece of music. Um, the two verbs uh, that are most extended, repeated, and pushed to the highest uh, limits of the, of the coloratura's bel canto range are gazing and pleasing, and the rhyme between gazing and pleasing. Um, and the structure of the sort of what's called the da capo aria, which is da capo means go back to the beginning, um, <coughs> is then is, is which is very striking in, in almost all Handel's um, operatic arias, is here kind of distended and, and repeated again and again. You feel almost as if she's trapped in it. She could go on singing forever. Uh, uh, she sings the first verse, and she sings the second verse, and she goes back to the first verse. And then you expect her perhaps to go on to another verse. You're, you're sitting there, and you haven't got a text in front of you. Um, uh, and then she keeps, she's almost, in a, an extraordinary way, stuck on that gazing verse. And, and she just repeats it over and over again in, in higher and, and, and descending um, um, parts of the scale. Um, and it's like a kind of, um, uh, what you call it, a kind of pleasure mechanism that's taken her over, and she can't get off, or she can't get out, as it were. I get, and you keep thinking, oh, it's going to end now, and then another round starts. Oh, it's going to end now, uh, and another round starts. In one production, um, uh, um, th uh, there was, uh, it was an extraordinary effect. Um, uh, she's looking in a mirror. She's seeing her mirror image, and when she moves from the first verse to the second verse, a voice from behind the mirror comes back, sings the next verse, uh, and it was her recorded voice, obviously, that they put behind the mirror. But as it were, the image in the mirror sings back to her. Uh, uh, and so that, that sense of you know, this redoubling of self, um, and at the same time an entrapment in that redoubling. Uh, and it has uh, rhythmic patterns that are, as it were, orgasmic, but then it doesn't stop at that high point. You think, oh, it's going to end now. This is the big moment. <laughs> this is the climax. And it doesn't. It starts all over again. And it gives you that sense that this could go on forever. Okay. Um, so there is this capture of, this, of the subject in this imaginary sphere, which is both a visual sphere, um, and that's what Lacan, in his mirror phase essay, um, t talks about. He first formulates the notion of the imaginary around the visual phantasm. But late Lacan supplements it um, with a whole wonderful meditation on the voice uh, and, and the, ro the role of the inv invocatory drive and the relation to the, to the mother's voice, which is um, where he posits a whole a further set of a fundamental drives beyond what Freud had originally posited. Okay, so narcissism, self-love, um, uh, which is also clearly um, profoundly um, erotic um, and indeed you know, almost like a kind of multiple orgasm of the voice, uh, around this, uh, this self-doubling and self-reflecting. So voice, voice and image are kind of inextricable in the, uh, and, and they come together on that word gazing, okay, which is just the A of gazing, which is just extraordinarily elaborated and repeated um, uh, and, 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 and uh, in great crescendos and diminuendos of, of affect. It's an astonishing performance, really. Um, and if you wanted a kind of piece of cultural evidence about, as it were, the, the erotic nature of narcissism, as it were. Well, you, you certainly have it there. Okay, well, what about narcissism as a, as, as a category in Freud's thought? Um, I tried to lay out in my email to you um, the way it emerges um, uh, and the way it kind of disrupts 
um, in, in ways that are uh, quite productive um, but, but are disruptive. Freud's kind of conceptual system at that point, okay. Um, <coughs> he had, and he, recap he recapitulates this in section two when he's talking about the different kinds of love relationship. Um, <coughs> um, the uh, anaclytic relationship and the narcissistic relationship. He tries to set up this dualism, as it were, of types of, rela of relationship. Um, but he recaps the notion of uh, leaning on, in which the drive leans on the instinctual function. Uh, and that, that, that had been his first formulation of the, of the drive, which we looked at last term in the three essays of sexuality. And uh, the emergence of the drive in the infant as, uh, as it were, co initially coincident with leaning on, he uses that word, anleinung in German, um, leaning on and then deviating from uh, the performance of an instinctual function um, that is designed to meet need. Okay, so the, the, and the classic um, instance of this is that, is that of the eating, swallowing, digesting sequence in the infant, um, which, which, uh, which kicks into play that the child doesn't have to be taught or shown how to eat or digest. Okay, it's a kind of automatic, instinctual, reflexive sequence um, in response to um, the meeting of, its, of, the, of, the need, of hunger, the need, the need for food, which of course has to be provided from the outside. Um, the child can't provide itself uh, with hunger. But the, but the act of sucking or mouthing something um, becomes autonomous at a certain point. It deviates from and becomes a pleasure-seeking activity in its own right in the absence of need or hunger and in the absence of uh, the object of need. So the register of need and of uh, uh, self-preservation and of instinctual reflex, reflexes that are hereditary and species-specific and are designed to um, assist the infant to meet uh, that need, to establish a sort of equilibrium in the body, gives rise to this other psychical and psychosexual dimension. Uh, in Freud's case, in Freud's account, um, it seems to be in a spontaneous emergence, except for one or two moments where he seems to sort of, where the whole paradigm swivels round and he posits um, the initiatory activity of the other. Um, <coughs> but on the whole, it's Laplanche who, uh, who both uh, attempts to theorize that dimension. Um, so the drive emerges uh, then, um, and Freud says, through an autoerotic turning around on itself, it becomes, as it were, um, crystallized out as, as autonomous from instinctual functioning. Uh, when the self-pleasuring um, uh, repetition, um, the infant st sticks you know, part of its own body in its mouth. Um, it pleasures itself with a dummy, but it also pleasures itself with its fist or its foot or whatever else. Um, uh, so there's that moment of, as it were, autoerotic self-pleasuring uh, in Freud's account, um, which, which, as it were, crystallizes the drive as, 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 um, as, as deviant uh, from the, um, uh, the uh, instinctual function. So he has this category of the autoerotic, which is foundational for the very emergence of the sexual drive as such. Um, uh, but other... Um, uh, sexologists and, uh, uh, and, and psychiatrists at the time whom Freud is reading and in some sense who are reading him and are in dialogue with him like Havelock Ellis and others um, introduced the notion of narcissism Freud says it wasn't initially his invention, verbal invention um, 
in order to describe not infantile activity, but certain forms of adult sexuality, um, certain extreme forms of adult sexuality, um, which take the body, the, the own body, the, the subject's own body as a sexual object. Um, and the word narcissism was invented initially to describe that. Um, now, for Freud, um, that's, you know, at the level of clinical observation, that's a step forward because it leads you to think about, well, what about this phenomenon? Okay, how do we give an account of that? Um, uh, <coughs> but it also kind of creates a slight problem for his previous um, formulation because what is this kind of narcissism in the adult to do with the autoeroticism that he describes in, uh, as, as the mode through which the sexual drive in infantile sexuality emerges? So what's the relationship between the two, uh, autoeroticism and narcissism? Uh, and um, uh, this starts being a proliferating uh, series of conceptual distinctions uh, uh, that, that um, uh, seem to follow on. Um, because uh, if libido can be invested in the self, um, uh, uh, if you get a kind of ego libido, um, and Freud always... Um, uh, makes a distinction between narcissistic libido that is directed to the ego, and that could, in, could mean the body ego, the most earliest and primitive form of the ego, as we saw uh, when we looked at um, the ego and the id in chapter, at the end of chapter two. Um, but that's very different from um, the dispersed, fragmented, um, autoerogenous activity uh, which is dispersed around the infant's body and, and its excitable zones, as it were. Um, for Freud, narcissism is always directed at a single unified object, which is the ego, even if it is. Uh, the, the ego is experienced through the body. Um, but then there's libido that, that, is, um, that is directed towards objects. Um, uh, so we've got uh, the drives, the autoerotic drives, We've got uh, narcissistic libido directed towards the ego. We've got libido directed towards objects. Uh, and then we have, uh, again, as usual, Freud's, Freud's first encounter with, this, with the phenomena that's provoking his successive conceptualizations is, is extreme pathological um, phenomena, uh, which, in which he then realizes, sometimes belatedly, uh, that actually he's encountering something else which is not just peculiar to that group of people, of narcissists, who can only get off on their own bodies, um, uh, but some sort of larger um, dimension of human psychic life is encountered in extreme form. And so you can see this when he's thinking about uh, forms of narcissism, say, um, in megalomania, um, and we'll see in um, uh, the mania that is one side of, of, of melancholia when we look at the Morning and Melancholia essay next uh, in a few weeks' time. Um, but behind that narcissism, he's, he, 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 he realizes that it's a narcissism that had been previously attached to objects and is being drawn back into the ego. So and he calls it that secondary narcissism. So we've got the autoerotic drives, we've got the instincts, the autoerotic drives, uh, narcissistic libido attached to the ego narcissistic libido attached to objects and then he, th he, he sort of belatedly or at some point just reflects and thinks actually this narcissism of the, attached to the ego 
um, is a secondary narcissism, and behind it is a primary narcissism, uh, a structural primary narcissism, um, which, is, doesn't, which is, lies behind and is preconditioned for the possibility of uh, the extreme forms of manic or megalomaniac or nar uh, narcissistic uh, attachment to, the, to one's own body. Um, so what about this primary narcissism? Um, and there does seem to be then a proliferation of conceptual distinctions. And Jung, he's, he's in the middle of an argument, a battle with Jung, which is to end in a kind of split between the two of them. Um, and Jung says, well, actually, why don't we just kind of, you know, uh, uh, just, just reduce the number of conceptual entities here and just say there's a single psychic energy which can become sexual when it's directed at sexual objects okay, and otherwise isn't. And that, you know, that seems clean and elegant you know, solution. And Freud just won't have that because he, he feels that, that what that blurs or muddles up is um, the com complexity of the human being. Um, and he, nevertheless, he does want to establish uh, that, um, uh, say, object libido and ego libido in, are in a sense the same libido. But that, that uh, to get to that level, that's not just pre-given. It's not just um, there, as it were. Um, it's a secondary um, or later formation. Um, and so he poses the question of the relationship between the autoeroticism of the drives and the narcissism of the ego. And he says, something like the ego cannot exist from the beginning. Okay? The, the autoerotic drives are there from earliest infancy, um, from the first months of life. But the ego is, is a certain kind of formation Well, it has to be formed, it has to come into being. We can't just posit it as always already there. Um, and he's thinking about uh, then the formation of the ego and the formation of narcissism, as it were, uh, in the same, same development of thought. Um, and he, he poses this question, what psychical action, what psychical action is necessary to transform the fragmented, multiple, dispersed, autoerotic drives into the unified uh, libido that is attached to a single object in the first instance, um, the ego? Some psychical action converts one into the other, and it produces something that is unified, that unified through its many phenomena, through its many manifestations. So it's the same libido that is attached to the ego that gets put out into objects, and it's the same libido that is drawn back into, into the ego. So there's, an, there's a kind of interchange between these different forms of the same libido, as it were, but something has produced that out of the, auto, the, the, the polymorphous perverse autoeroticism of early infancy. Um, and he doesn't explicitly answer that question uh, in the narcissism essay. Um, and indeed, he doesn't go back to that formulation. The latest, later psychoanalysts have endlessly debated the question of the new psychical action and, and how one, what, what, what one might posit at that point uh, as, as, the form, as formative of, the, uh, of narcissism. Now, this version of narcissism, in a sense, uh, the implication is, uh, uh, is what brings the ego into being. Okay? What unifies the drives uh, in, a single, uh, in a single entity that is both subject and object at the same time. Okay? It's both a desiring subject and a desired object. Um, and though he doesn't make the connection, the connection must go back to his positing of the ego um, as, as arising out of the body surface. 
uh, as a bodily ego that is, uh, that, which is the result of the mental projection inwards uh, of the of the, of the surfaces of the body. And this is what Anzieux, as we saw with the notion of the skin ego, takes up and develops so richly and so interestingly. Okay. Um, so uh, the ego then um, is something that is, uh, emerges out of bodily experience but is, a, is, is, uh, is not something that can be just located in terms of um, neurology as, uh, as representations in the cerebral cortex. Um, this is a mental, a psychical entity, um, and it's a libidinally charged entity. Okay? It's a self-image or self-representation that is libidinally charged, uh, and that's what, that's what um, distinguishes it, as it were. Um, now, I've suggested that Lacan's um, mirror ego, in the mirror stage essay we're look, looking at this week, announces your skin ego, uh, as it were, post-Freudian attempts to think what, you know, what the development process is that produces the unified, narcissistically loved ego out of the dispersed, fragmented, polymorphous, perverse condition of in earliest infancy. Um, but it's a unification in, in the, ego. the ego. The ego then is a sort of, um, uh, and in Lacan's account, Ideal, imaginary, ideal, unified um, body image. And in Lacan's account, um, it's acquired before the body actually is unified. Okay? So it's an imaginary anticipation of a future unity and mastery of the body. And the child is given this, this, this possibility uh, in its own mirror image. And, and becomes fat in that very common experience, which is described again and again in in, in um, child development literature, etc., it's a child's fascination with its mirror self. Uh, it's entranced by the by this by this uh, uh, this, this self represent this representation which it recognises as itself. And he makes this quite interesting distinction between, or, or he relates it to, and then distinguishes it from the way in which self representations are crucial in actually precipitating physical development in other species. He talks about he draws on research around, say, the pigeons uh, and how. Uh, uh, the female pigeon in a famous experiment um, <coughs> only matures um, if she sees either another member of her own species or uh, a, a mirror is put in her hitherto isolated uh, cage or, uh, and she sees her own self-representation. And that, that image uh, precipitates physical development. Uh, and he says even in certain kinds of locusts, research has indicated that they can almost switch from one subspecies to another if they're isolated from their own kind but put in the company of a slightly different but slightly related species of locust. Um, and he also quote, uh, cites research which compares baby monkeys with baby human beings and how at a certain point baby monkeys are way ahead of us in terms of, of ability to, in, to manipulate instruments of various kinds. And they too become fascinated with their mirror images, but they very quickly realize that there isn't another monkey there. Um, and they start trying to smell it and look behind the mirror, etc. And then they just lose interest in it. And this happens in, in the young of a lot of species. At first they're fascinated by this image, they think it's another, another animal, and then they can't smell anything, and there doesn't seem to be anything there, and they just lose interest in it. Okay? Whereas the human baby becomes fascinated. It and starts making arm movements and rocking back and forwards and, and, and testing out 
their relatedness to this image in the mirror, um, and particularly to the environment. It's not just a single isolated image. Um, it's an image in space, right? An image in a three-dimensional virtual reality. So it's to do with the positioning of the body in space. And the, and the baby sort of turns around and moves its arm, moves its right arm, moves its left arm, sees what the, the image in the mirror is doing, etc. Uh, and how that image occupies its virtual space in the, in the mirror world, as it were. And just plays with it in, in a variety of ways. And, and is delighted by it. Uh, um, and so there is a kind of... Uh, uh, and and uh, Lacan calls this a primary identification uh, with, the, with, the, with the image, which promises... Uh, unity, um, integration, uh, uh, mastery of the body at a time where what the infant is experiencing is uncoordination uh, and uh, it's sunk, he says, in, um, in fragmentation and nursling dependency, dependency on the other. Um, the baby, the human infant can't manipulate its own limbs terribly well, it certainly can't walk, can't even crawl for quite a while, okay? um, but it's captured it, it, it undergoes this state of imaginary capture. Um, so that's Lacan's account of, of how the process of unification might work right, as, as a sort of mirror, a mirror image um, that, 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 as it were, um, promises and captures. But he argues very strongly, at the same time, alienates the subject. Okay. Um, uh, the relationship between the lived experience, even when the infant starts to be able to walk and to manage its body uh, and to be secure in its own body, um, the internalization of that mirror image, which Lacan suggests by analogy with the other species, is crucial in our physical and, uh, uh, development, as it were. Um, uh, it's by, in, by acquiring such an image, it becomes a sort of working template for how we, how we inhabit and manage our bodies and without which we couldn't do it, as it were. But at the same time, as he stresses very strongly, and it's what makes his essay so provocative, and in, indeed, in the first generation psychoanalysts, certainly in Anglo psychoanalysts, enraging, um, was his stress on this is a fundamental alienation, because however well you get to inhabit your body and manage it, um, uh, the, the identification with the semblable, the, the counterpart figure in the mirror, um, that has enabled you to do that, never meets your actual lived experience. Okay? It's an idealized, schematized self-representation, which is, of course, in reverse. And he takes that very seriously, that literal fact, that when you look in a mirror, as it were, the image is reversed. So if I, if I look in a mirror holding a pen, the figure of John Fletcher that looks back at me is holding a pen. But where's, what, what, what hand of his is holding the pen? Yeah, it's the other hand, right? If you think of my mirror image, will hold, won't, won't sort of, because I'm holding it in my right hand, won't be holding it in its right hand, right? It will be holding it in its left hand, okay? Um, <coughs> and, and Lacan makes a certain amount of that. He claims that that has its effect in dreams and in, uh, and in unconscious imagos that emerge in, in psychosis and in states of breakdown, etc. Um, so this, this um, unified, imaginary, idealized self-representation um, lives with, uh, but is at, in some senses at odds with the, the actual experience of the body even, and, it, and, it, and it mediates uh, the relationship to the body. Um, 
you know, for, for Lacan. He doesn't say, he does gesture towards the libidinal dimension, okay? But he doesn't, he just, he says very little about it. It's really surprising when I, when I go back to it, because it's such a famous essay. When I go back to it, um, I'm really surprised how it's almost entirely an argument conducted at the level of perception, okay? Of the visual perception of the image and the identification with that. Um, uh, <clears throat> but there's no, and he says this is, this image is crucial for libidinal normalization, by which he means that you identify correctly with your own sex um, uh, and, and take up the correct position in the, in, in the Oedipal Triangle, as it were. Um, uh, but he doesn't explore that at all, right? It's just a gesture uh, at one or two points in the essay. Whereas Freud's account of narcissism um, as the fundamental moment through which the ego, in, in and through which the ego comes into being isn't, at least in this essay, is not conducted in terms of um, uh, the perceptual register or what Lacan would call the imaginary. It's conducted very much in terms of a sort of libidinal dynamics uh, uh, as, uh, a, as a self-representation that is narcissistically constituted. Okay. <coughs> This leads to, as we saw last term, when we were looking at chapters um, two and three of the ego and the id, uh, to, again, further developments that are very productive, but also further confusions to um, rival notions of, of, uh, of the ego. One of what I'm calling um, uh, the realist ego, the ego who, he says, centered on the perception consciousness system uh, and which embodies the reality principle and by virtue of its relation to reality um, uh, can control and regulate the drives uh, in, the, in the interest of adaptation, of adapting um, the id and its demands to reality. Um, and that's a, that, that, that has become a dominant version of the ego, certainly in that version of ego psychology in American uh, psychoanalysis and to some extent in, in British psychoanalysis as well. Um, but um, it segues into, through this reflection on uh, perception, where it's not perception of outside objects, it's apperception, perception of the self, perception of one's own body. Uh, and it's through reflection on that, uh, at the very end of chapter two, um, uh, that the body is a very special kind of object, because uh, <coughs> we both, in, which is both subject and object, in the moment of apperception or self-perception. Self um, uh, and then leads Freud to, to make his suggestive but undeveloped propositions to be developed later by Anzieux about the body ego and the surfaces of the body and their projection inwards as a mental represent, self-representation. Um, <clears throat> that then becomes the basis in, in, in the beginnings of chapter three. I'm rehearsing here last term's material. Uh, an ego, an account of the ego built up through identifications with others. And these later identifications with the parent figures, etc., cetera, uh, as it were, um, Lacan wants to argue uh, there, their the condition of possibility for one's identification with the others is laid down in that mirror moment by one's identification with one's self-image. A self-image that one will only ever, that will never be, uh, as it were, continuous with oneself or it's asymptotic, he says. You know, people remember asymptotes from maths, you know, where there's a graph, isn't there? And there's a curve, and we're told that that curve will only meet the straight line. I, 
can't draw, it's impossible to draw it, at infinity. Okay? So it gets closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, uh, but they will only meet at infinity. Uh, that is to say, there's a sense in which they'll never meet. Okay? Um, and he's saying the self-representation, the, the self which is the kind of template for the ego, um, will always be, as it were, uh, at a distance from, uh, at a varying distance from um, the, the lived reality of the, uh, of the subject and the subject in, in, in his or her body. Okay. Um, I'm s and it's, and it's, in a sense, it's full of interesting things and, and, and worth exploring. Um, the, very, the fundamental um, function he gives to this um, uh, mirror ego, uh, I'm kind of asking questions about, not leastly in the wake of Anzieu, because it does seem to me Anzieu describes a much more fundamental experience, uh, an experience of the, of the body, uh, of the body's surface, and of uh, the body's surface that functions as uh, a, a, a protective sac for one's, for one's interior, uh, as, a, as, a, um, uh, as a receptor and a filter out of things coming from the outside. Um, and, in, and he privileges the sense of touch over the sense of, uh, of sight. Uh, the sense of sight is the, is, is the dominant perceptual uh, uh, register in, in Lacan's essay. Uh, and it seems to me, in a way, there's a kind of circularity in Lacan's argument. Uh, who's, doing, who's doing the identifying? Right? If the ego only results from this act of identification with the mirror image, who or what is doing the identifying? And it's in, terms of, in the terms that Lacan sets up in the essay, I think it's an unanswerable question. In other words, he kind, it kind of presupposes the ego in order to explain the ego. Um, so there, there has to be something there, a, f a further account, a further narrative to be given. Okay? Which in, and this does seem to me, Anzieux um, is starting to give that account in his account of, of the intimacy of touch. Uh, doesn't he say that, in that wonderful throwaway phrase, um, talking about the mother's touch of the infant's body? Um, the massage is a message, as it were. Um, uh, now, that notion of, uh, of, 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 of the intimacy and, and primordial nature of touch, of the touch that awakens the infant's uh, uh, sensations of its body, bodily boundaries and surfaces, seems to me has to be in place for anything like a Lacanian account of, of the child looking at an image and knowing it's them. Okay. Um, they have to, in some sense, already have achieved bodily boundaries in order to be able to make that that moment of recognition, as it were. So it presupposes a whole lot of things it doesn't give an account of. Um, now, in Freud's account of narcissism, and I, well, I should add a, uh, interrupt myself for a brief moment and, uh, and say this is, just as there are two versions of the ego in Freud, fighting it out in the same text, there are two versions of narcissism. Though the second uh, 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 late Freudian version of narcissism doesn't appear in the 1914 paper. Um, and that account completely collapses all these distinctions. Um, uh, because in that account, um, the child is born um, uh, already narcissistically involved in itself. And, uh, and the problem is, uh, how, does the, how does the child, the little solipsist, um, wrapped up in itself, um, uh, gain access to an external world of other people and of objects? Um, now, Laplanche 
uh, in the bit of Laplanche we looked at the last term, polemicizes against that account, that notion of primary narcissism. We are born in a narcissistic call, almost, as it were, and the problem is how do we exit from it, as it were, like a, we, as if we were born in a shell, as it were, and we had to break out of our little shell, as it were. And you know, I think it's very easy to, def to, to deflate that. There was a dominant account in American psychoanalysis associated with Margaret Mahler uh, of a kind of uh, the, ba the baby symbiosis with the mother. She had to bring in the mother, but absorb the mother into this narcissistic um, uh, sort of eggshell, as it were. Um, it was a dominant account. And all research on child observation, etc., is that the child is open to, indeed overly open to, dangerously open to, the uh, impacts from the external world um, can't protect itself from uh, from from impacts um, and has to learn, has to acquire um, uh, an interiority which is not there from, from the beginning, as it were. Um, so that later version of primary narcissism is up against the version of primary narcissism that we meet here in this paper, where it's a formation that comes at a later point. It's the moment in which the dispersed autoerotic drives that had leaned on the instinctual functions and had been implicitly dependent on, on, the, other, on the other, the nurturing adult, as it were, come together and form a unity. Now, in section two of his narcissism paper, um, Freud um, rehearses very interestingly the very thing he, that his later version of narcissism will forget. That is to say, um, uh, the relationship between the drives and the instinctual functions, the relationship of leaning on. Um, he, he invokes that again um, in because he's going to use this notion of unleaning, of leaning on, to set up his model of these two types of love relationship. A love relationship is, that is narcissistic as against a love relationship that is, uh, 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 well, the, the word that's used by Strachey, like so often, he invents this um, unnecessary and unhelpful technical term, anaclitic. Okay, and it comes out of um, uh, Greek and Latin grammar, um, uh, where an anaclitic or an enclitic is a part word that never appears by itself, but only appears in relationship to another word. Okay, leaning on the other word, as it were. And you could, you could see almost words like um, uh, dis, or syllables like dis or un uh, or re that we add to words, Prefix prefixes and suffixes. Might be one example of enclitics. Or, uh, they lean on the main word, but they never appear separate from it. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, so he uses that term to describe um, uh, the relationship of leaning on. Um, uh, which, as he straightly does point out in the in the notes, is, is is not the child leaning on the mother, but the drives leaning on the instinctual functions. Um, and Freud then wants to derive, as it were, uh, by by tracing the the way in which an object is chosen. So, looking at the genealogy of a given object choice, as to whether the object that's chosen, the love object, is modelled on the self or the other. Okay. Uh, with, uh, they're modelled on the other, the parenting uh, other on whom you were dependent, uh, or are, are they modelled on uh, your on a self-representation? Uh, so uh, the uh, enclitic and the narcissistic types of love relationship. And um, 
he also tries to gender them. Um, uh, one's uh, a male type of relationship, the other's a female type of relationship. Though even in the process of setting that up, he qualifies it. He, 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 he admits halfway through his account of uh, a narcissistic love relationship as being a, f a female or feminine form of love relationship, that actually he's talking about a particular type. And clearly what he's got in mind is the, is the classic type of the femme fatale. Okay, that's, that's what he's talking about. Um, uh, and that's a recognized psychosocial pattern or type. Um, but um, I want to uh, sort of hang a question mark over the viability of the, of the schema he sets up. Um, uh, and and, and he, uh, uh, he, he outlines it on page 90. Uh, he says, a person may love, according to the narcissistic type, A, what he himself is, i.e. himself, what he himself once was, what he himself would like to be in the future, or someone who was once part of him. In the case of the narcissistic woman, uh, uh, she, she, she um, loves her child. Uh, she moves her narcissism on from herself to her child, as it were, and loves her child narcissistically. Um, so even though she loves another object, she loves it as a sort of um, extension of um, her own uh, self-love. Uh, and according to the anaclytic or attachment type, um, the lover loves the woman who feeds him or the man, the father figure, who, who protects him. Uh, now, that is a distinction between um, the ways in which uh, people find their way to certain forms of object choice. Okay? But what it ignores is the very thing that the whole essay has been about. Okay? Uh, that, the, that the ego, um, as it were, which he says at one point, is a reservoir of libido. The, le the ego, as constituted through primary narcissism, is a reservoir of libido, which it loans out, as it were, to objects, but which, under certain circumstances, it can take that libido back into itself. And we, when we look at the morning essay, morning and melancholia essay, in cases of where the love object dies, for instance, uh, uh, the pathology that can sometimes infect mourning, and indeed, to some extent, which is present in all forms of mourning, um, is that uh, recouping and regathering back into oneself uh, of the libidinal um, investment that had been in the loved and now lost object. In that account, then, all love relationships are a form of donated narcissism, as it were. Okay? And indeed, La Ro isn't it La Rochefoucauld, I think, the great French um, uh, is he a philosopher, a commentator, um, talks about uh, uh, the state of romantic love as egoism à deux. In other words, a shared, a donation of one's primary narcissism to the other. So in that sense, um, all love relationships are narcissistic uh, because they're based on this donation of narcissism, of one's narcissism to, to the other figure, um, to, the, to the object. And if you're thinking of it in, in the kinds of uh, terms or the, in terms of the distinction that Laplanche has introduced between Ptolemaic and Copernican, between self-centered and other-centered and the question of the relationship to the other, um, then one might push the argument a bit further to say, uh, and the reason why, uh, well, what is the reason why? Or what enables one to donate one's narcissism that has brought one's very ego into being to another object? Right? Uh, uh, and that raises a question. Does this just happen spontaneously? Now, in Freud's account, it, it, but implicitly it does. He gives no account of, uh, of uh, except the missing term, the direct psychical action. 
okay, uh, that would produce narcissism out of autoeroticism. Um, but as always with Freud, there's this theoretical gap or absence, but then there's this wonderful description, um, a comic, almost ironic description, where he moves from talking about romantic love to talking about parental love. Okay? And he talks about uh, that wonderful description of uh, His Majesty the Baby, the parental fantasy of the baby. Right? Uh, and I think, in a way, um, that provides us with the kind of, um, if you like, the, the, uh, the phenomenological description uh, of the processes that would le could lead one to, to as it were, uh, pose uh, or, or to give a Copernican answer to the question of, um, uh, of, the, of the direct psychical action. That is to say, let's not assume that, that, that any psychical action on the part of the subject just arises spontaneously, but that it is a response to the direct psychical action of the other. Okay? And that's what this description, a very telling and in some ways poignant description uh, of, um, uh, of this parental fantasy. And I just want to finish by reading this wonderful paragraph at the end of uh, uh, section two. He says, the primary narcissism of children, which we have assumed and which forms one of the postulates of our theories of the libido, um, is less easy to grasp by direct observation than to confirm by inference from elsewhere. If we look at the attitude of affectionate parents towards their children, we have to recognize that it is a revival and reproduction of their own narcissism, which they have long since abandoned. The trustworthy pointer constituted by overvaluation which we have already recognized as a narcissistic stigma in the case of adult object choice, dominates, as we know, the emotional attitude. Thus, they are under a compulsion to ascribe every perfection to the child uh, and to conceal and forget all shortcomings. Uh, moreover, they are inclined to suspend in the child's favor the operation of all the cultural acquisitions which their own narcissism had been forced to respect and to renew on his behalf, the child's behalf, the claims to privileges which were long ago given up by themselves. The child shall have a better time than his parents. He shall not be subject to the necessities which they have recognized as paramount. Illness, death, renunciation of enjoyment, restrictions on will shall not touch him. The laws of nature and of society shall be abrogated in his favor. He shall once more become the core and center of creation. And I think that's a crucial formulation, right? This fantasy of a subject centered on themselves. Okay. Uh, that, that's the parental fantasy of his, his majesty, the baby. The world is organized around his desires and needs. Uh, his majesty, the baby, as we once fancied ourselves. The child shall fulfill these wishful dreams of the parents, which they never carried out, etc. Um, parental love, which is so moving and at the bottom so childish, is nothing but the parent's narcissism born again, transformed into object love, and unmistakably reveals its former nature. So in that account, we have an account of, as it were, the narcissistic investment of the child, the parent's donation of their narcissism. Uh, and it's a donation that has a centering effect because it, its carrier or its vehicle is the fantasy of His Majesty the baby who is the core and center of creation. And that emphasis on core and center, I think, gives you that sense. It's, it's like the libidinal equivalent uh, of, of Lacan's mirror image, you know, okay. Here is a here is a process of centering, but it doesn't happen spontaneously. The child is centered as a as a narcissistic love object by its parents. They donate their narcissism, a narcissism that they've had to suspend or renounce in some form. Uh, they donate it to the baby, uh, and it's that that process. I think um, 
that His Majesty the Baby lays down a kind of prototype or template for, for what Freud elsewhere calls His Majesty the Ego. And interesting, he uses the same sort of ironic formulation for both the baby and the ego. His majesty, the fantasy of His Majesty the Baby, which is not initially the baby's fantasy, it's the parental fantasy of the baby, lays down the vorbild, the prototype for His Majesty the Ego, that process of centering the drives, binding them into a unified narcissistic investment in the self as love object. Okay, let's finish there.